HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. This week on Meet and Three, we're telling the stories behind iconic dishes. We learn what it will take to save New York's most famous egg cream, discover the importance of the goat neck in the East Village, and take a trip to India for delicious flatbreads. Our customers who come in to get egg creams and t-shirts, they love to talk about their childhood or their teenage years or their college years. I was living in uh, Nepal in northern India. And out there, there's a real famous dish, a classic dish, I should say, is called paya. Parathe Wali Gali, or as it awkwardly translates in English, the lane of the stuffed flatbread makers, is probably one of the most popular food streets in Old Delhi. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome author and food writer, Nikki Segnan. In this episode, we'll talk to Nikki about how lateral cooking can improve your kitchen skills, why practice shouldn't make perfect, and we'll hear Nikki's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, in our first segment, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia once said, no one is born a great cook, one learns by doing, and do she did. Few people, especially non-professional chefs, have thrown themselves into learning all they can about cooking. Julia was so obsessed with the how and the why and all the variations on themes that she drove poor Simca Beck, her co-author on Mastering the Art of French Cooking, crazy with questions. I can imagine Julia asking Simca, Simca yet again, Pourquoi? 
and I can see Simka's face switch from quizzical to finite, answering, say sa, because it is that way, Julia. Julia was the kind of person who really wanted to understand food deeply. Moreover, she felt her own curiosity might be of use to other people. People like her, who were, as she put it, tremendously interested in food, but not necessarily naturals in the kitchen. Lucky for the world, Julia turned out to be a great communicator in print, on screen, and in person. She had the gift of the gab. Someone else with Julia's passionate curiosity and the same desire to share it is award-winning author Nikki Segnan. Like Julia, Nikki has the ability to look at the way cooking is typically taught and approach it differently, to ask questions, to flaunt convention, and attempt to thoroughly and clearly communicate that re-examination to a hungry audience. No easy feat. It took Julia and Simka about nine years, and they were only covering French food. A former food marketer turned author, Nikki's latest book, Lateral Cooking, One Dish Leads to Another, covers a gamut of global cuisine linkages, among many other cooking relationships. First published in the fall of 2018 in the UK, and out now in an American edition, it follows her multi-award winning first book, The Flavor Thesaurus, which has sold more than 250,000 hardback copies and translated into more than 12 languages. Nikki's here today to take us through the concept of lateral cooking. Welcome to the podcast, Nikki. So what on earth drove you to embark on the exhaustive research to help us understand the relationship of basically all the dishes in the world? <laughs> well, I would love to say, well, one day I was sitting down thinking, well, I wonder how all the dishes in the world connect up. Um, uh, that would have been that would have been a brilliant thought, but it wasn't where it started. Actually, where it, this this started quite. Um, uh, it was quite a modest project, actually. I think I just I was finishing up writing the Flavor the Saurus, which took three years to research and write, and I thought that um, uh, I had my next book planned because when I was writing the Flavor the Saurus and I was having to test lots of different flavor combinations, it turned out what I really needed was a book of uh, what I think of as skeleton recipes with guidance about how to take those basic preparations. So let's say a risotto, a cake, an ice cream, um, a pancake batter, how to take those things and flavor them lots of different ways. Um, and that book hadn't, uh, I, as far as I can see, had not been written. So um, I just started to keep this set of notes, just noting down loads and loads and loads of different recipes for that particular preparation. And then my own flavor experiments and then actually some practical considerations like oh do you need that many eggs what if you change the sugar all those kind of things and it was really towards the end of the flavor thesaurus I started to think well you know what I'm using these notes so much um, and they're full of stuff that you can't get anywhere not even online so I'm I'm going to broaden it out and I'm going to turn it into a book about flavoring different things <laughs> well you know, that was, and I, that is kind of how I worked on it for a few years. But um, what happened was huge amounts of research. And the more I got into it, the more I started to, if you like, read recipes and analyze recipes, the, the ingredients, the quantities, the methods, and compare them, then it's, then it started to shape shift and become this slightly bigger thing. Because you know, if, if my purpose was to help other people flavor different preparations and become slightly more loose limbed in the kitchen and able to kind of start making things up, 
with with as I started to get more into it, the ambition grew, which was, well, what if we started to say, what if you to write a book where you didn't need the book at all after one? It, it was actually written with that um, endpoint in mind. So that started to take the book in a different direction. And then I started to see patterns in recipes and it started to broaden out, if you like. So, you know, as I'm writing about something like frangipan, um, which is uh, ground nuts, butter, sugar, and eggs in metric, that's all the same weight. Uh, then whenever I saw a recipe that was like that, then I would start collecting it into that group. Oh, that what that one's like frangipan, except it's made with with walnuts, or that's that, or that's um, oh, that's frangipan, but it's rolled into vine leaves, or it's being used in puff paste. So just seeing all these things and uh, and starting to make this enormous, I mean, I'd say sometimes a genealogy of food. Was this book sort of birthed in in tandem with the work you were doing on Flavor Thesaurus, or did you finish Flavor Thesaurus and then start working on lateral cooking? No, I finished. I, the notes were, you know, so I was using these notes to help me do the recipe testing for Flavor Thesaurus, and then I had, but I had decided by the time I finished Flavor Thesaurus, I'm going to just get straight on with this because it's so interesting, and I still had, you know, I was a bit exhausted after the Flavor Thesaurus, but I still, I just had the you know, the wind beneath my wings. I was so interested in that subject, thought the book would be really useful. Um, and then, um, no, I just, I didn't think, but it seemed like a very... It seemed more contained, perhaps. It seemed a very contained, very sort of quite sensible, but the flavour of the Zorus, in a way, it's sort of sensible, but it's kind of not. It's also quite a quirky, eccentric book in its way. It took a lot of poking around in dark corners to find the information for the flavor thesaurus no one's ever really written a book for not even really for the flavor industry that's as that comprehensive about flavor so this one was going to be the kind of like the lighter easier kind of you know just knock it out in a couple of years and it, and it took you how long it took eight years eight years <laughs> it took eight years but it became you know obviously it became something i mean this subject you could write it could go on for for many more years. And I do think if I'd sat down to say, okay, what about if we try to make this family tree, this genealogy of food from all over the world, then I'm not, you know, I'm not sure how long that might, that might have taken. That might have taken, you know, 20 years. And what was the pitch to the publisher? Did you say, I, I just need eight years to do this book? Or <laughs> were they incredibly patient? Because they uh, thought it had such... Well, um, I do have the most brilliant commissioning editor who... Um, who has got a rather it takes as long as it takes attitude actually as long as it's great um so yeah i think they yeah i think it's very much kind of whatever it takes i mean i didn't show anybody at all for three years so i was a bit nervous when i did eventually show somebody in case they said you know this is bongos or this is oh no i'm not very interested in that i mean it would just be terrible well, it, it, i have to say it's quite an extraordinary book because it's so comprehensive and you make all these linkages and it's really unlike as you which is quite extraordinary too because there's so many cookbooks and books on cooking and you think there can't possibly be a gap where someone's never written about this before but they are there so i thought It'd be great if you take us through, the book is really based on these continuums, take us through one. And I'm not sure if frangipan is one, but I always had watching the great British Bake Off be reminded, because they're always talking about frangipan, and that laddering up when you go from, you know, almonds to ground almonds to almond flour, 
could you do that one? Because I think that's re- people can get their heads around it. Like, what's the difference between frangipan, marzipan, and a macaroon? Or yeah, so uh, it's one of my favorites. Actually, is the nut continuum. So we we start with marzipan or almond paste, uh, and in an uh, American quantity, you take two cups of ground almonds and one cup of sugar, and then you take those two dry ingredients and you bring them together with as little egg white as you need to, in order to make a dough. Now that's the most uh, that's at, it at its most basic, but that is a marzipan. If you put a bit of almond essence into it, it will taste like marzipan. Uh, and you can do all sorts of things with that, and you can make it in all sorts of ways. Uh, you can make it with peanuts in a Mexican way, and you know you can make it in pistachios if you've got that kind of money. Blah blah blah. <laughs> then we're going to take one step along the continuum, and instead of using just enough egg white to bring together a dough, we're going to use. Uh, about an egg for every, I don't know, if we've got two cups of ground almonds and one cup of sugar, let's say we take two egg whites, whisk them up so they're nice and frothy with the sugar, and then add the ground almonds, and then you can shape those into little balls and maybe pop a a lovely almond on the top of each of them and bake them, and there you have what we call macaroons, not macarons, not those kind of fancy French ones. They take a bit more work. But uh, just a lovely simple almond biscuit now there are loads of different variations of that so uh, as we go through the book we also stop to say actually if you make these with hazelnut and a bit of cocoa then that's a kind of particular tuscan biscuit and you could do it this way you can do it um if you do it with coconut you might want to leave the egg yolk in because they need a bit more moisture so you get so that's step two the third point along the continuum is uh for a cake that um is called torta Santiago and you'll see this everywhere if you if you ever go to the north uh, west of Spain you see this cake everywhere uh, you can tell it you can see it because it has a, a St. James cross reversed out of icing sugar on the top it's very beautiful sometimes it comes in a tart case sometimes it just comes as a cake it's a very simple delicious cake and you can serve it cut into um, little triangles with some um, nice creme fraiche now if we move on to the next point along the continuum and we use two cups of ground almonds, a cup of sugar, three eggs, say, and then a cup of butter, then you make frangipan. And frangipan is used in so many different ways. So each of the starting points along the continuum has a little picture section at the end that just shows you lots of different places that you might use this stuff where I, have, that I might not have mentioned in the text so far. So particularly if you have a bit left over, then there's all sorts of things that you can do to, to play around. And then we take slightly bigger jump on the continuum because we're going to move into something savory. But we're going to keep the same amount of nuts, but we're going to replace the sugar with something like a cup of uh, roasted vegetables and some olive oil. And we're going to mix it together and we're going to make all sorts of sauces. So if you think about there's loads and loads of nut-based sauces. I mean, the starting point in the book is tarator, and that's walnuts and oil and dill and um, olive oil. Did I always say that? Yeah. Uh, so then you make these kind of very thick sauces that sometimes you can then turn into a soup by adding some nice stock or with tarotor adding cold yogurt and where does that come from what part of the world uh is that would be from eastern europe okay so okay. Uh, all sorts of different versions you'll find that in you know it, all around the kind of eastern block okay um and also uh, that kind of thing starts to uh go south as well so you find all different versions in turkey for example so uh, tarotor is also a name in turkey for uh, a sauce that is just 
sesame and lemon. Mm. So when you see that particular starting point, it really goes in lots of different directions in terms of flavour. But really, you're you're doing the same thing as you're doing all the way along the continuum, which is taking nuts, if you like, as a, a nice, soft, creamy base, and then adding different flavouring components to them and some fat. But here we're talking about using some olive oil and mm. emulsifying it, really. That sounds a lot more complicated than it is. And then the final place uh, point on the nuts continuum are any number of really fantastic um, stews made with nut sauces. So the example that I use for the starting point is pheasant which is uh, either, you know, is traditionally pheasant or duck or chicken cooked in a sauce made with um, pomegranate juice as the stock, if you like, and then thickened with walnuts. Mm -hmm. I'm using the same quantities usually as we go along so if you're interested in kind of getting to the point where you don't need recipes it's just all fairly standardized along the points that way of making a stew always really delicious by the way they're all fantastic is used all over the world so we have in Africa we have something called marfe which is made with tomatoes as the stock and peanuts as the thickener and anything might go in there any kind of meat all sorts of fish, but also, you know, just a vegetarian, vegan version using, you know, chunky vegetables like sweet potatoes. And then uh, korma, the beautiful Indian dish that's often made with chicken. So you're just taking almonds, maybe a bit of cashew, a bit of coconut, all sorts of combinations. You use there lots of um, exotic spicing. Uh, There are yeah, there are just many, many different versions. There are South American versions that use condensed milk as the stock, you know. So, you, yes, there are... There's one starting point given as an example, and there's probably about seven, somewhere between seven and ten different variations, but mind-boggling. But they're all part of the, You know, every single one of those is part of the same family, and the method of creating them is similar. And maybe it's a good... Um time to sort of shift because it's related to the continuum the book is also organized in a to me a very different way than typically see with cookbooks usually cookbooks are either by course or by type of food and yours is as as you started to allude to kind of in these cooking products if you will and so maybe could you take us to maybe through in describing how it's organized like why you did it that way and and how that relates to this you know philosophy that you were discovering it's even more than a, it's a fundamental, I guess, of world food, more than just a philosophy. Yeah, because because what guides a book like this, something as new as this, is the ultimate usage of it. Uh, I don't think that lateral cooking is the book that you sit down to plan a three-course meal to give for your friends. You know, it's not, it's not a, oh, let's have a dinner party book. This is a book about, this is a book that's main point is, helping you learn to cook by heart, helping you learn to do stuff more flexibly. And so it makes sense. It just makes so much more sense to say, okay, let's have a look at, um, let's look at the custard continuum. Do you know there are only two things in all of the things on on this continuum, which is custard tarts, which by the way includes pumpkin pie, cheesecake, quiche, you know, they're all one family. So, yeah, people don't always think that those things, because they're they're not yellow still, are custard-based with additions, right? Exactly. But the principle that guides making them is exactly the same. And if you're making a crustless quiche, you know, it's still 
all that matters really is how many eggs do I need to set this? And then also uh, don't cook it too hot. So once, you, once you've learned those two things, everything on the custard continuum shouldn't go wrong. And that goes into, um, if you like, uh, uh, creme caramel and all the international versions of that, creme brulee, um, pouring custard, ice cream, uh, creme patissiere or pastry cream, uh, and then crema frita, all of those things. It makes so much more sense to me to put those things together to put them in a spectrum of how one changes into another. So, for example, creme anglaise, pouring custard, which we make quite a lot here to put on our um, stodgy desserts, uh, is exactly the same as the base for any ice cream, except it has less sugar in it. And the ice cream has more sugar in it in order to perform, form the correct size ice crystal. So it needs, it, it's not uh, just a, you know, a taste thing, it's actually a science thing. So actually, if you're making your pouring custard, then make some extra and make up an ice cream, you know, with some cream cheese in it, try it with some olive oil in it, try, you know, there are a million things you can do. So the person, the cook that I'm talking to is someone who's going to dig those practicalities, who's going to find like, oh, if I'm making this, I'm going to double up and try something else of my interest. And so my int- what I'm doing is I'm creating a tool for people who are playing around, fiddling, experimenting, who are cooking for practical reasons as well. But that's really interesting. I, I, I don't think I need to add to the pile of dinner party recipes. You know, wonderful recipes. They're, they're, you, know, you can't walk down the road without someone hitting you over the head with a recipe. This book is, the, I think, the first book to try and do something different, like join it up, make you a better cook, make you more confident, get you to try things, say... Do you know a panettone is really just a bread and a cake mix mixed together? Go do it. It's really, you know, because it's fun. And um, so I think you could safely say this is a book for curious home cooks who really want to either up their game because they they have a, a set capacity, but they maybe don't understand the relationships as well as they would like to, or for someone who's slightly baffled by it, who this kind of approach I don't know if you're, Samin Nosrat wrote this book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And one of the things she's always, it's not so much in the book, well, it's probably in the book, is she was like, no one told me about these relationships. They helped me understand everything. And a lot of professional chefs have probably not born this way, but from the training they've had, they've had an indirect exposure to the, the repetition and all of that. So they've internalized it, but they don't intellectualize it. And it's not how they approached it, but you're, was that your goal in providing particularly home cooks a, a different way to garner that training and confidence or 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 no maybe yeah i mean i think so it's just it's me the writer talking to me the keen amateur cook mainly but uh, obviously with the flavor of the saurus i kind of thought i i think there's a interest in this beyond just amateur cooks because no one's i think if no one's written that book before and there's a lot of thought and some interesting opinions and lots of stuff in there that no one's ever pointed out to you before wherever you're coming from on the spectrum of uh, talent if you're a newbie or if you're someone who's been doing it for 40 years you're going to be interested in it I wasn't so sure whether how, how lateral cooking would play in that way but some of it seems to me that most of the people that have told me how much they really love it are cooking teachers and you think well that's really that's the last person because because you would think they come to cooking like we know everything with, uh, right understanding it, yeah and i think there's just that whole joining things up just yeah who has the time to think about that well you know 
fortunately Apparently I did. You yeah, did. <laughs> well, you know, I you know, I took it on as a project and I did think about it and I think yeah, you're not necessarily going to notice all these things or necessarily have such, you know, to say, well, here's dull, but did you know also there's this Ethiopian version? Like, it's, it, that that kind of stuff is not what most people are walking around with in their head because, no, yeah, no one has the time. So Well, that's what I was saying. It's interesting because you've pointed out things that I think people who do teach cooking or, or, or cook professionally, they have learned an entirely different way through simple not explaining those relationships, but by learning basic route ways of doing things that they, you then do through repetition. And through repetition, um, they've they've internalized these relationships, but it, it, it's through a totally different process. And it's also through that process of that, you know, you know, if you give 10 people the same exact recipe, they will not produce identical dishes. They might produce an identifiably similar dish with a similar taste and but you've given them the same recipe and I think that's because of the intuitive compensations you need for weather conditions or whether you might have actually put too much sugar in or your eggs were slightly bigger right and these are all the things that is one of your goals in writing this book to help cooks know how to fiddle with right not 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 just understand the relation so i was trying to point out that there's there's almost these two amazing things coming together in your book one is to teach people to cook more intuitively and how to get there and then the other is the global relationships and they're kind of like two entirely separate tasks going on at the same time there's even more to it than that it's a very very layered quite complex thing I mean, it doesn't look obviously. And when you look, open it up, it looks like a. It just looks like a book. Um, but I mean, there's the there's another thing which I find quite interesting about natural cooking, which is the leeways given in each start point that says, "Oh, do you need that many eggs? What if I haven't got the? What if I've only got brown sugar? Can I swap this for that? Can I? Do I need to use gluten free? Or can I use gluten free? And all that kind of thing. Those things are all tackled for each of the start points as well because. Uh, I like them. I'm interested in them. And I, I think it's a nice way of also giving people some space to to change things up or make them much more, you know, make things much more um, to their own taste. But um, they also uh, so they give you know they give you a whole lot of other options. And well, I feel like the leeways are are that tool to show you how within certain parameters you can monkey with stuff to get other results but then also i think one of the things you really encourage people is not so much playing with your food but to be adventurous with with the leeway so that you then by experimenting learn the learn the relationships and also learn the limits of you know there are some things you can monkey with and there are some you know ratios as you said it's, it's all actually chemistry that will just not work if you if you ultimately put too many eggs in your I think yeah if you use too many leeways I mean just it doesn't say don't yeah don't, don't take all the egg sometimes you can take all the egg out of things I try you know try and give people an understanding it's almost like giving them a giving them the recipe in 3D so they can turn it around in their heads and start thinking about how did they want to make it and I'm very clear about this in the introduction you know sometimes uh, things aren't going to work out and sometimes things don't go right first time because you know, when you're developing a dish or you're making your own version of something, it's going to take a few goes. The first time you cook anything, it's always a practice run. But I think one of the things with the professionals as well, people who are of a different level, that I always find quite interesting is by putting these different preparations on continuums, then the 
geeky people, the people who are super curious, are going to start thinking, well, what happens between these two places? What if I, what if I stopped halfway between... Um, Oh, gosh, I'm trying to think of a good example. What if I stop? Well, I mean, lots of people now make creme caramel in a very creme brulee-ish way. Mm. So, you know, creme caramel always used to be made with milk and whole eggs. It had a texture that, you know, was much more rubbery, but much more, you know, it would show the spoon um, mark as it went into mm-hmm. it. It would make a certain kind of sound as you go more to... More torque flying. Yeah, exactly. Or it is. Yeah. So, you know, a much, a, a much more... Um, a, lo- a much more less luxurious thing than a creme yeah, brulee. Yeah, more set than yeah. creamy. Yeah. But now a lot of chefs use um, all all cream and all yolks, and so they're actually making a creme brulee that they can turn out. You just put a little bit more yolk in it so that it's actually got enough strength to hold its own weight. Uh, that kind, you know, there's a whole load of things to explore like that. I think it's like what do you if you're looking at things on a continuum, you can start monkeying around i like that expression in that in that way of like taking things so if you look at the bread continuum we eat a lot of bun like things here in the uk um and a bun is in between a bread and a brioche and in fact in france a bun is called a poor man's brioche so as you as you look at the continuums there's always that question of like well what about some of the gaps what are you know what are what what could i make in this space all right, we're going to come back to explore more of those gaps and talk more lateral cooking with Nikki Signet in a minute. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words... I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Join us to explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, where you'll taste and imbibe to your heart's content and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Join the party. Tickets are available now at heritageradionetwork.org gala. Welcome back. We're talking to award-winning food writer Nikki Segnet. 
about her latest book and her philosophy of lateral cooking. So I was interested in, um, because I work with and I'm related to the food writer Anne Willen, who's written very comprehensive uh, encyclopedias on food at times, one which in America is called Lover and Practique, which is really a rebranding of an originally British book called the Reader's Digest Encyclopedia of Cookery. And lateral cooking is very comprehensive, but kind of in a totally different way. And so I, I thought, I know you know that book. It's referenced in the bibliography as a resource. How, how, how would you compare and contrast? Because people might, that book sold very well. A lot of people have it as their kind of go-to reference. How would you compare and contrast lateral cooking to a book like that? Uh, I have it. I have to say, when I was making my notes, it's one of my first go-tos. I love it. I love, uh, mine is a Reader's Digest, and it's one of the first it's probably the first like Bible of cooking that I bought. Uh, so compare and contrast. I feel like I should be writing this and handing it in. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you, you can you can re- no, frame, frame the question however you want. <laughs> I'll just try not to take eight years. No, I think it's lovely because it really made me think about. Um, I hadn't thought about it before, but um, obviously with the first, there are two things. Two big things, and one is content and one is style. So we start with the style because it's really interesting to me that um, if you write a book like that, that's um, you know uh, an encyclopedia of cooking, it's going to it really is very comprehensive. Um, but the register is is pupil, uh, sorry, master to pupil, and so it is. It's very firm. It's quite dispassionate in a way. I mean. If you read most of them, they don't tend to the, the the author or the group of authors don't tend to get too enthusiastic about um, the process of cooking. If you like, it's, it's less anecdotal too. It doesn't have. It, I mean, there are no personal, exactly. Yeah. There's no personal stuff. When I stuff. was traveling with my husband and had a picnic, then we took out the pomegranate. Exactly. I mean, so that's the uh, so just the you know what is expected of someone writing those books is it's it's serious and it's um yeah, as i say it's authoritative and it's clear and uh and the flavor of the sauce and lateral cooking don't take that position uh, fortunately because firstly i probably wouldn't enjoy writing it very much but i uh you know i i got into this because i wanted to write more than anything and um and so, I, I, and I'm not a trained chef, and I'm not somebody who's been doing it for so long that I can just, you know, I, certainly when I started lateral cooking, that I could just pick up a pan and make anything and teach you to make it. I'm a, so I, my register is peer to peer. I I love cooking, and I'm talking to people who love cooking. I I just never ever think of, that I have to persuade the person that I'm writing to uh to get into the kitchen you know try cooking it's not it's, that's not it i'm talking to the convert i'm preaching to the converted mm-hmm. i'm not i'm not even preaching i'm chatting mm-hmm. and laughing and probably having a glass of wine mm-hmm. with the converted mm-hmm. and it's very much that and that means i can uh go off and uh anecdotalize and I can say, I mean, of course, if you're, you're making an encyclopedia of cooking, then you have to include everything, including the stuff that you don't like. <laughs> I do. I, I, lateral cooking doesn't include anything. It's big and it includes lots and lots of things. And it will keep you very, very busy for a few years, I think. But it, <laughs> but it doesn't include everything. So, you know, there's no, this, there's no compositions like salads or, 
you know, those big roasting tray things that are very popular or um, Buddha bowls, stuff like that. I, I don't cover that because it is kind of, it's sort of cooking. Mm. So most of the stuff that I'm talking about is putting lots of ingredients in a bowl and doing stuff. It's, it's, it's more, uh, there's more technique going on there in kind of like rather than sort of arranging and peeling and arranging ingredients so it's not comprehensive um so it's well it's comprehensive in a very different way but it's not comprehensive in that you're trying to cover every base you were right looking at these discoveries and relationships and where they sort of held and and you're you're also looking at the fundamentals of things that are bases of all different kinds of ways to cook dishes whether it's a stew whether it's pastry whether it's bread yeah i mean we're prob- yes so it probably covers a vast amount of uh the culinary territory but not all of it it's not nor does it try to and it's not it's not a book that's trying to push any kind of fashion it's not it's not it's not trendy well, and there's not a goal to list every kind of fruit that exists that you could possibly eat. It, you, you've only included the fruit that's relevant to the continuums and relationships that you were exploring, right? I mean, it's fairly, it's classic. And I suppose where the reach comes, where the interest in like new and different things are things that are classic in other countries that you might not have come across. It mm-hmm. doesn't tend to be. And there's, there's some stuff that I've created myself that I think, oh, this is really nice and I'm going to include it because it's sort of not something available somewhere else. But... So in terms of its content, it's it's pretty different. It's you know it's uh, it's very opinionated. Yeah, you have. I would say stylistically, it's a bit like not sort of her later books, but her groundbreaking book, How to Eat, Nigella Lawson, which she really is speaking to you as you say, as a peer and telling anecdotes, and you have a lot of. I don't know if they're highly personal, but personal stories of you approach. So it's very readable in a way that maybe in an encyclopedic book, as you said, that's meant to be authoritative is, is different. Yeah, I think um, that is also part of the plan. It's also if you're going to be telling people new stuff, um, we live in a world where not everyone has a huge amount of time to sort of sit down and really concentrate on big you know big wadges of text so you know lateral cooking like flavor source is broken out into small pieces like very it's very digestible you can just kind of you can open it up start reading or just read a little bit here about you know how to make a chocolate and sets one pepper brioche maybe and then actually before you know it you've read the whole of the section and you've moved on to the next one and stuff like that because everything's broken down into you know cookie size <laughs> cookie size uh paragraphs that make it a little bit easier to get lost in it take it on board and learn stuff by you know by stealth hopefully and um in that chatty way as i say not not so i think we touched on this a little bit but i wanted to hear more from you about it so julia was very big on two things one is not being afraid to make mistakes because you're never going to learn anything if you are and also on never apologizing for for your mistakes so and you you definitely cover this in the book and and have alluded to it, but I wanted to talk to you more about your your approach and your advice about you know essentially self forgiveness in the kitchen. I'm very good at it <laughs> because I've had a lot of practice. Okay, so with the cooking practice comes the practice because it's just it is completely part of being a cook, and um, I think certainly here in the UK and I feel I might be wrong but I feel perhaps increasingly in the states with um 
cookbooks being so much one colour picture and one recipe. And these pictures are extraordinary because <laughs> it's become so much cheaper to produce those books. Mm. Then there's just so many of them. And I think they have such a cumulative effect on how people feel about what they produce. I mean, I cook all the time and what I make does not. Not ever all, look all like Instagram the picture worthy. no and it isn't well I do do Instagram but I it's all I again I call you it all, it's organic <laughs> it's like that's what I've this is what I've made in fact the other day on the other day I made a um the famous plum tart from the New York Times yeah. do you know that recipe yeah. Well, apparently, you know, so it was, you know, just the beginning of the plum season. Um, my husband had been nagging for an apple cake. So I thought, of course, you can't completely give him what he wants. So I just <laughs> make him up, make him a plum cake instead. I really want to try this famous plum cake. Well, I did. I made it and I put it in the oven and the friend came around and we went and sat in the garden. It was a nice, one of the last nice summer days. And, um, and then my husband came into the garden maybe about an hour and a half later and said, Oh, the cooker timer went off about half an hour ago. Was it anything important? <laughs> yeah. So, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to put it on Instagram because that's, that is, you know, life happens that, while you're that, cooking. That, is that what John Lennon said? Life's what's happened what when you're making like? something was burn. Was it hopelessly burned or was it just a bit overdone? Well, the shocking thing was, Todd, is that it, it was pretty bad. You can have a look at an Instagram. It okay, was, yeah. Okay. I mean, this was not going to be presented at even a dinner party of close friends. But the family managed to finish off. I mean, the burn, <laughs> it, was still it was pretty burnt, but it went. Um, isn't that funny? It still tasted like a good homemade cake. Then I made it again um, a, a couple of days later, and I didn't burn it. And I put that one up on Instagram. I'm not sure that the burnt one didn't taste slightly better, or maybe it was Caramelization just... Caramelization. <laughs> you know, that reminds me of... so. Um... My wife was always complains about having been fed leftovers when she was a small child. And so there's a dish in our family called burnt beans, which is essentially green beans that have been already cooked in butter and from the night before that you then recook in more butter and basically burn them. And they're delicious because it's a highly caramelized yeah. kind of thing. But again, it wouldn't look great on Instagram because you actually the more charcoal-y they look, the better they actually taste. But if you haven't tried burnt beans. I haven't, but I do. I, I am collecting. This is one of many stories that I hear from people of like things that their mum used to do. that were like, you know, ways of not throwing stuff away that might have these days been thrown away. And it's so it's kind of charming. Burnt beans. It kind of, in, you know, if you said it in French, <laughs> it would be great, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, haricot vert. Um, no, but the French, I think they wouldn't call it burnt. They would give it some, you know. Um, haricot, haricot vert noir. Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. So we actually, I wanted to ask you this other question, because which we were just starting to touch upon. And given that you said you're writing for this peer-to-peer -peer audience, I really struggle with the explosion of interest in food and cooking, which I think is fantastic. It's what the foundation is aiming for and is lovely. But then you do start to worry about the translation of, is it really producing more interest in actual cooking and more cooks at home in particular, or is it just producing more people photographing their food in restaurants? And do you, being that you're a writer and observer of of these things, what have you been founding or what is your gut telling you as you your books have come out and been really well received? I remember when I, when I was pitching The Flavor Thesaurus, which was a very painful 
process with many, many rejections. Um, one of the things that I had done was in my marketing job, I had access to this enormous database and I could run a, a, a cross tab of questions. People who really loved cooking and people who said they were creative people. It's just in this country. Uh, and it was two million. And I thought, well, that's, you know, that's fine. I'll settle for two million sales. That's not a bad book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, maybe some of them live together, so 1.5 million. Even but if you got 50%. Though. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I was quite surprised that there was that high because then, you know, that's both, that's people agreeing with the extreme. I would be fascinated to go back and see whether that's changed. I think without the numbers, I feel unsure about making any kind of, guess on that because the thing is is I don't know I think certainly I we heard like oh people just watch food tv and they don't really cook I don't think that's true I think you know I think there are quite a lot of people who like cooking I think one of the things that's changed certainly since I was a young girl is that there are a lot of guys that cook because when I do talks it's a lot of men come along I think they particularly like this approach of like it's a geekier it's not full of pretty pictures. So. It's, I suppose it's giving a, it's a handbook, isn't it? It's like mm. here, here's some guidance to like go off and do your own thing, and I think that's uh, that's quite appealing. Um, what I do, I suppose, what I there are, there are more concerns that I have about social media and food that are not so much about whether people are doing it or whether they're just looking. I mean, it's a strange thing to me to just want to look at lots and lots of pictures of food, <laughs> you, you know, but then I do it all day. So perhaps, you know, perhaps if I didn't, if I was back in my normal job, I would want to do it more. I suppose I, I'm slightly more concerned about um, creating expectations in, this, in the same way that um, uh, glossy cookbooks do that, you know, a lot if 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 it's overstyled and people think that that's what everyone's churning out, I think that's not so great. And you don't see perhaps enough brown splodge. <laughs> you know, some of the most delicious food is not very beautiful. Mm. I mean, I really love bean stews and, and mm, I really love dals and they're, they're ugly. They're not very photogenic. No, they're, they're not very photogenic. So I don't, I don't photograph a lot of the stuff that I make because I eat a lot of, yeah, a lot of unphotogenic stuff and I'm not going to fuss around with it before I serve it up. But I suppose... I also think that the I get a little bit more if you want something I get grumpy about it's the nomenclature mm. like people calling things things that they're not mm. so uh, there's a calling certain, a creme caramel a creme brulee when it's not or vice versa I think that I might even forgive that a little yeah. bit although I would, mm, I would <laughs> <laughs> actually uh, I might not bother to go and incorrect I think more things like calling things panzanella that don't have tomatoes or bread in them <laughs> or, I'm serious. It's, it's really like the I, you know, this. The, what would that be? A corn and lima bean panzanella, which is really succotash. Yeah, what? exactly. I mean, just like things getting to the point where they drift. That the people that are writing about it don't know or don't care about what the actual thing is, and that slightly worries me because it's, I suppose it's a bit like fake news, fake not you know fake recipe naming, so that we lose the idea of what something is. I mean, it's different to say. This is inspired pipe. This is my start point for this was panzanella. But instead of the bread, I use this. And instead of the tomatoes, I use this. And what I ended up with is this. And I think there's so much of it. And in fact, I'm judging a food book prize this year. And it's leaked into the publishing as well. So there are some books that are just claiming that their dishes are something which they're absolutely not. And I'm, I really hate that. And I think that's a shame to kind of lose the, the, you know, what things are. It's sort of speaking to what I think this 
dialectic that Julia often talked about, which is improvising in the kitchen is great, but you have to know what you're doing first. And that sometimes people put the improvising before the, the, the base knowledge. And I think that's a lot of, again, to bring it back to lateral cooking, what you're trying to show is there, it's, improvising is fantastic, and, but you need to have some understanding of these linkages and continuums to do it with any kind of effectiveness or authority. Even. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it is definitely comes back to the music analogy. Like you have to learn to play the notes before you go off and improvise yeah exactly you know you know uh if you obviously if you read lateral cooking from cover to cover you will become miles davis <laughs> well on that note let us know if you've already been practicing your own lateral cooking and also what are some of your favorite twists on transforming one dish into another send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at joyachildfoundation.org and let us know after the break nikki's going to reveal her joya moment we'll be right back when you flip anything you really you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Nikki, what's your Julia moment? Well, I wish I had met Julia. I think we would have got on like a house on fire. I agree, I agree. Um, well, and as you probably know, here in the UK, Julia is not someone that we really grew up with. That is such a shame, isn't it? Because, <laughs> well, I think, let me talk about the absence of Julia. Yeah, when yeah, I, please. I think when I, I didn't get into cooking. My mum cooked everything from scratch, but I didn't learn from her. I was not interested by the time I left home. Uh, and then when I did come back to it and start to watch the people who are making the kind of teach you to cook shows, they're quite serious. And um, I don't know if it ever that kind of thing ever really spoke to me. Um, and when I see and read about Julia, what I see is somebody who reflects exactly how I've come to feel about food. And I wonder whether and cooking and whether she would have gotten me there a bit that joy that absolute um the playfulness so uh, i think somebody once wrote that the thing that you didn't see on the page but something that she brought to every recipe was she always added some fun Mm. and it's given i mean this is a country here where we laugh about everything we joke about terrible things but we don't joke about food and we don't joke about cooking. And I have a feeling it's because we don't take it seriously that everyone kind of pretends, like puts on serious face. Mm. But it is fun. I mean, the reason that most kids want to cook is because it's messy play. Mm. And it's, you know, it's fun and they don't care whether things go wrong. And you just get stuck in. And yes, uh, uh, it's, just, it's just great. And at the end of it, you're probably going to sit down and have a meal with people or a breakfast with people or a brunch with people, maybe open a you know, bottle of something. It's just the most wonderful thing. And I think she embodies everything that I have come to love about cooking and food, plus a belief in the work that you, you know, th- that what she did, the effort that goes into it the exhaustion and the exhaustiveness of the work that goes into it even if it takes a bit longer in order to get to somewhere really special I completely 
you know, I would I would have been her disciple for sure. I just absolutely those those, and you, you can have those two things together: great fun, playfulness, a sense of um, high spirits going into it, but also the backbone is serious stuff, properly tested, really thought about, really well researched. You know, um, and then handed over as a, you know, what could be a more terrific pairing than those two things and uh, I guess there aren't many people who've managed that well and you couldn't have said it better than the way we say it exactly that that you know we see Julie is this marriage between education and fun and uh, that that's wonderful thank you very much thank you very much for having me it's a pleasure and um, thanks everyone else for listening the book again is lateral cooking one dish leads to another by Nikki Sagnan, with a forward by Yoda Ottolenghi, published by Bloomsbury. Look for it, ask for it, at your favorite bookselling source. Nikki's first book, The Flavor Thesaurus, was also published by Bloomsbury. There are a lot of B's and P's in there. To keep up with Nikki's latest discoveries, you can see what she's talking about on this program on her social media feed. She's at Nikki Sagnan on Instagram and at Real Nikki Sagnan on Twitter. And it's Nikki, N-I-K-I, and Segnit is S-E-G-N-I-T. For further inspiration and encouragement in the kitchen, follow us at Julia Child on Facebook or at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram. It's at Julia Child J-C-F, and I'm at T. Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N, on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Remember to give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>